Welcome to the Business Trendsetter Podcast, where we talk about trends and how to use them to grow your business. My name is Manny Turan. And I'm Adam Hartung. We are here every week to discuss all things trends and all things business growth. We use the backdrop of the world to discuss these things. You know, here we are, the new year, 2024. Um, everybody's got their resolutions in mind. The companies have their their strategic plans, and I'm putting that in quotes in uh, in action and uh, the motors revved up ready to go so where are you placing your bets and you know we talk a lot here about trends and what it really takes to grow your business is is to align them with trends and part of that is to put your money where your mouth is now one of the big topics that we talked about last year had to do with electric vehicles which is one of a couple of trends right and if you think about it there has been some successes and some failures in the marketplace. Uh, having worked in Detroit for a while, I have a huge respect for automotive engineers and maybe not as much respect for some of the management and ownership of these companies. But if you think about GM, Ford, you know, you have the, the big three uh, and then you've got all the folks in, um, in Europe. And then you've got this company called BYD in China. And so Adam, I want to start the conversation with a discussion of, some of the mistakes, and of course, I didn't mention Tesla, of course, we'll come to that in a second, but some of the mistakes that the, the large traditional automakers made in transitioning from internal combustion to electric. And then I want to talk about Tesla. And then I also want to bring in this, this wild card, which is this um, Chinese company called BYD that seemingly came from nowhere and is really creating some, um, some buzz in the industry. So let's go from there, Adam. Okay, and first of all, uh, Manny, let me congratulate you on your alma mater, University of Michigan, being the number one college football team in the nation. Well, I actually, I went to University of Arizona, but I did spend time there in, in Ann Arbor, oh, so you're fair enough. In Arizona, okay, I thought you actually finished in Michigan. No, my my uh, my former wife was a, a postdoc there, but I still okay. have a lot of an affinity towards that team, and so I'm I'm totally fine with oh, that. Oh, all right, all right. We'll see. We all learn something every day, and so um, I, I think the the first thing we do when we talk about the the big three automotive companies, and if we run, wind the clock back a decade ago, you had this guy um, who had founded PayPal, uh, who took some money and said he was going to start a car company, and uh, that was Elon Musk. And when he did, he set out to make a car and it was all electric. It wasn't a hybrid and it had no gasoline uh, powered capability at all. And the most interesting thing to me about it was that at the time, nobody in the auto industry thought he would succeed. Uh, universally, they thought it was a really, really bad idea. They didn't think that electric cars would ever catch on. They thought it would be a novelty. And they thought that somebody trying to start up a car company would fail. Uh, many people had tried, uh, DeLorean being one that people remember. Fisker was another that people have forgotten about now. But every time somebody tried to start up a car company, they failed because there was a lot of regulation. It wasn't easy. It takes a lot of money. And they were like, okay, this is just, it's dumb. It's a dumb idea. And it's some quirky guy in California, and you can just pay no attention to him. And it was in 2009 that I first started writing columns about Tesla when I didn't even really know Elon Musk and didn't watch about him, but I was very impressed with the fact that the company was making a car that they sold 100% of. And this was the problem 
that the other car companies had was they, A, didn't get to production, like John DeLorean. He tried to pick so many cars that he had to raise so much money that he failed, and he got caught trying to raise some money, apparently illegally, with a cocaine transaction, and he got out of that, but the car company failed, right? So the DeLorean never went anywhere. And so here he was, he had, he'd scaled the company initially small enough, and he did it with a two-passenger uh, sports car, which, you know, really the only two-passenger sports car in the United States was a Corvette. And so that seemed like a very niche, small market. Um, the first car that cars that he made only went 80 miles on a charge. So that meant you could only go 40 miles. You had to go 40 miles back home. And it did seem initially to me like, like a toy. I kind of agreed with that idea with the one exception that he was making cars and he sold all of them, every single one of them. And when I would did any research on it, what I found out was the people that owned them loved them. They said they were very, very fast that they had better pickup, they were off the line quicker than a Corvette, they were much lighter than a Corvette, and they handled really well, and they said well, they were really, really good cars. And I was shocked, I said, there's something here, there's something very real here, and we should pay attention. And I wrote a column in Forbes in 2009, in which I said that, I said, you know, here's something that I think is a really, very real trend, and that uh, we should pay attention to it. And at the time, the chief operating officer at General Motors was so offended by my column that he wrote a reply column that was published in Forbes in which he said that I was an idiot. I didn't know anything about the auto industry. I was completely wrong and that Elon Musk would fail. And he actually called Steve Forbes, who at the time was the publisher of the magazine and wanted me fired because he said that um, I didn't know anything and Forbes was being stupid. And, and if they didn't fire me, he was going to pull GM's advertising. Well, of course, you know, he didn't have power over GM advertising. They didn't do anything like that. And he was making a much bigger do out of it than he should have. He got me a lot more publicity than I would ever have gotten on my own. <laughs> but it, again, that's 2009. So we're talking 14 years ago when I, that started. But what we saw was that at that point, it would have been pretty easy for any of the big three auto companies or any other auto company, Volkswagen uh, or any of its divisions like Porsche or BMW or Mercedes-Benz or Toyota, you know, any of them to start really tracking what was happening in all electric cars. You had the Prius out at that time, which was a hybrid. It was kind of unique. It was the only one, Toyota Prius. You would have thought some of these would have sat down and maybe just thinking like I was thinking, said, Let, let's see what's going on here. Let's see if this could really grow. Let's see what the technology looks like what's happening with battery technology, you know, and let's put a little team watching this and see what would happen. And it struck me that none of them did. None of them did. Yeah. None of them even started it's remarkable. that look until around 2014. Yeah, it's remarkable that nothing really happened. I mean, of, of course, they had the wherewithal, they had the the cash, they had the, the R&D, they knew how to make cars. Yeah. I just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And for those people who don't know, the, the way that um, when Elon Musk first made those first Teslas, there was a, a GM, no, I believe it was a Chrysler. Anyway, it was one of the big three. I think it was Chrysler had a plant in Fremont, California, where they had produced cars. It was an assembly plant where they produced cars. And they had shut that plant down um, for operating reasons. I don't remember what it was. But the net of it was the plant was sitting there empty. And they leased the plant to, to Tesla. And that was how the, the first cars were made. They were made in Fremont, California, in a, in a former uh, uh, auto plant that was owned by, um, the facility was owned by one of the big three. So even here, you could say, wait a minute, if we've rented this facility to this guy and he's making electric cars and he's paying the rent, maybe we should, again, should pay attention to what's going on here. Yeah. 
But it strikes, it gets back to something we, we don't talk about a lot on this program, but it was the origination of my, my, my research, which was understanding why organizations get their feet stuck. And that's that they get locked in. You know, they, they have a business, they know how to run that business, and they like to pretend like the world doesn't change. They look around and say, oh, here's a, here's a cell phone. Oh, over here's the internet. You know, here's the technologies that are happening around me. Uh, and that's interesting for somebody else. Right. But they run their business as if that will never apply to them. Like they don't, they don't have to think about it, right? And that the world won't change. And certainly that's what we see in the course of those three companies. And we know that it doesn't have to be that way. Companies can transition. If you take a look at IBM years ago, it was a computer company made mainframes. It, it developed a PC, but it let that technology get away from it, right? It, it didn't follow up on that technology after it invented it. And Microsoft stole the show. And, and it looked like IBM was probably going to fail. And a guy, a, a guy from a consumer products company named Lou Gerstner was appointed the CEO. And like I said, he, IBM was going to fail. This was in the 1980s. And he said, no, what we're going to do is we're going to go back and go back to our corporate partners. And we're going to deal with um, uh, software. And we're going to actually you know, help companies by focusing less on the computer and more on software and services. Yeah. And he revived IBM and got a very, it was a spectacular recovery. And a book was written, How Elephants Learn to Dance. And it was this book written about how he took this large monolithic organization that was stuck, make thing about mainframes and mini computers and hardware, and he transformed it into a software services company that became very, very successful, very profitable and did quite well. Um, so it's not like you, this is all preordained. It's not like right. once you're stuck, you can't get out of it. You can get out of it. That's the principles we talk about, you know, here when we talk about focus on trends, think about how what the fringe element is doing, pay attention to what's happening on the fringe. Think about where resources are being deployed in the marketplace. You can you can move out of your the position you're locked into, but it won't happen ever automatically. You, the leadership has to sit down and say, okay, I'm going to take a look at this and I'm going to do something about it. And the question is, okay, let's go up to 2014. Now what happens is we're, we've got Tesla selling a lot of cars. They announced they're going to sell the Model 3. And at that time, the cheapest Tesla car you could buy was about $78,000. And again, the chief operating officer of uh, GM wrote a column after I'd written a column. And I said, you know, how well Tesla was doing. And he said, well, they're going to run out of money. I mean, now they're going to play in the big leagues. They're moving away from mm -hmm. selling two-seater sports cars and very expensive cars that compete with Mercedes-Benz, $70,000 Model S. And he says, now we're going to go into the general purpose cars, high volume, takes a lot more assets. There'll be a lot more scrutiny by the National Transportation Safety Board. And this will be a huge failure. They'll run out of money. And just like DeLorean, they'll be gone. But there was a little trick that Elon Musk pulled that I thought was just, again, absolutely brilliant. He's selling 100% of his cars. He says, if you can't afford a Model S, which I sell 100% of, so I'm not going to cut the price. I'm going to keep it at $80,000, $78,000, And the high end was $101,000. He said, I'm going to bring this Model 3 to market, and it's going to take me something like 18 months. But you can get in a list to get one of the first deliveries. It's right. going to sell for about $30,000, I'm hoping. Don't know for sure, but probably $30,000. But if you give me $1,000 as a down payment, you'll get in a queue in order to go get one of these cars. Right. And in the first couple of months, 300,000 people made a down payment. Right. So he got Remarkable. all this money for doing, you know, he didn't have to raise it by going out and selling stock. He got it by getting people to yeah, make more brilliant. It's a very, very clever idea. So now what you would say is, wait a minute, I thought this guy was going to go bust. I thought he was going to run out of money. 
300,000 people put $1,000 down to get in the queue for a car that they know could take at least, it's going to take at least two years before they get one. It may take three years before they get one because they got to scale up production. And they don't really know the list price. It could be 30, but it could be more. They don't even know. Yeah. So you'd think, well, maybe I really ought to pay attention to this. Right. It's not how it works. <laughs> not how it works. Because why? Because it'd be stepping outside that 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 way of doing things. I mean, if you look at the automotive industry, it's we do this model year. This is how we do it. This is a team. I mean, it's very sequential. And yeah. when they end up making big moves, it comes with a lot of pain. And of course, pain's part of life. Pain's part of, I heard something that, that was very interesting the other day from this lady. She said, pain in life is inevitable. Suffering is optional. <laughs> okay. And I think that rings true for the automotive industry. I mean, when Ford killed off its sedan, uh, you know, all the sedans, it was painful. But in the end, it helped to save the company and, and give it more uh, more gas for the future, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it, it, let's be very frank. If they had started doing their research and paying attention to trends, transitioning would have been far less difficult. Because you know, it's, it's sort of like if you if you go outside and, you, and you're looking at the traffic in front of your house and, and you keep seeing that the traffic's getting greater, and you observe this for a year or two, then you might sit down and get on a map and you might go down and try to figure out what's happening around me that I'm getting more traffic down the street in front of me. And you might discover, oh my gosh, look at this. They've, they've done away with a, a street over here and over there. They've put some dead ends in and it's rerouting the traffic down my street. I have to now think about, is my house going to be worth as much money? Because if the traffic volume keeps going up in front of my house, then that could definitely hurt the value of my house and be less desirable. As this house becomes more traffic and, and then you, one day you see double yellow lines in the middle of your street and you should say oh my gosh now i better think hard about selling yeah. it's time to move on it's time to go make a decision make that decision to move why well because you were watching and you noticed it and you thought about it and you said i, I may have to make a decision here i may have to change what i'm doing and you're preparing yourself to make that transition should you have to do so but most planning systems, they're not looking at the world and trying to say what could happen and how would I prepare for it. And if I had to change, what would I do? What they're doing is looking at what you did last year and trying to figure out how to do it yeah. better, faster, and cheaper. And that's What's remarkable about what I learned from you at the very beginning of our um, relationship, Adam, when we first met at that Vistage uh, team is the idea of lock-in. And really what it means is one of the overarching themes here is that, you know, your own success is what slows you down, what's, what drags <laughs> you down. And you called it in your book, uh, a success formula, which sounds amazing. It sounds, oh, great. I've got this formula for success. But in the end, it sort of uh, it negates your success by creating lock-in, which prevent you from going in the direction of where the trends are. Yes. And you know, we've seen it. We've seen time and time and time again, these companies make these decisions that or make the lack of decision, which is, of course, a decision in, in its own right. And, you know, they're, they're now they're stuck in the water. So. I think now what I'd like to do is turn to another piece of data that's new. It just came out in the last week. Again, this data that I'm going to provide now, I want to source it properly. It all comes from Statista. So anybody that's listening or watching this podcast, you can go to Statista and you can look up the data that, I, that uh, I'm going to be talking about here today. They are very great. They're a wonderful data source. Uh, I, I recommend every, everybody subscribe to it. They put out two charts a day and it helps keep you up abreast of what's going on in the world. But what they did was they just published data on BYD. 
And if you don't know, BYD is an auto company in China. It's only, it makes all of its cars in China. And we finished 2023 and they came up with some very interesting data. The first one was that BYD sold more battery powered electric vehicles than Tesla. So Tesla has been the world leader and now BYD in 2023 became bigger. So Tesla sold, according to Statista, 484,500 cars in 2023. Um, according to, uh, uh, again, Statista, BYD sold 526,400 battery-powered cars. So I'm making the difference here because there's hybrids too, which are electric. So you have hybrid electric and hybrid battery. So these are the battery ones specifically, and this is the data that they put out. This is a big deal. It's a big deal because if you wind the clock back to 2018, uh, at that time, BYD was only making 500,000 cars a year, and 70% of them were um, a, a, a gasoline-powered cars. So in 2018, here was a car company that was a little bit bigger than Tesla, but not a lot. And it was a traditional car company with engines and transmissions and brake systems. And that was really where it had been. And it had just started to sort of experiment in electric cars. This is 2018. By 2023, they now have made, they, they were making 500,000 full battery powered cars a year. Plus, they're making, I believe, that many or more of their hybrid cars. Um, it, it's not quite clear that hybrid cars, they started making hybrids before they started making batteries. If you add up cumulatively the number of electric cars they've sold, they have sold uh, 1.57 million battery-powered cars, BYD. So there's 1.57 million. They've sold 1.44 million hybrid, plug-in hybrid cars. So they've sold 3 million electric cars since 2018, since 2018. And they no longer make traditional gasoline-powered cars at all. They have no internal combustion right. cars. They've transitioned the entire company across. And this is something that's going to change the marketplace. Because now what we have is a company that's as big or bigger than Tesla, that's making as many cars as Tesla. They are number one now in China, but they're now making a big push to sell their cars in Europe. And if you're familiar with the um, um, Belt and Road Initiative that China did, where they made big investments in countries in South America and in Africa, they have, through that process over the last 15 years, made investments in developing countries that have opened the door for doing business. So now they can go to Brazil, where they've loaned money. Now they can go to Nigeria, where they've loaned money. They can go to Kenya, where they've loaned people money. And they can say, we are going to come in with the BYD car. Right. And the people there are not you know, anti-China like many Americans are. Uh, our policies also are not very friendly to China right now. So it's unlikely that BYD would come to the United States. But they can go to these other countries where they continue to build volume. And as they build volume, they build knowledge. They figure out you know, better batteries. They figure out better uh, ways to operate the car. They get better at software engineering for the cars. All these things, cumulative production, as we've known since 1980, cumulative production is a learning curve. And the more you learn, the better you are being able to stay ahead of the competition in any particular race. So now we have this company ready to push out of China and they're going to go, like I said, to the developing world and they're going to start to make a push in Europe. And it, it very likely could be a big problem 
for Tesla. Can Tesla keep up? But where it's really a big problem is that we have General Motors, Ford, and Stellantis barely coming out of the chute. Yeah. Same with Mercedes-Benz and BMW. Uh, and well, Kia. I think it's it's going to create, like you said, it's going to create some waves in the industry. And I think that even though these individual players might quote unquote lose, I think the consumer is going to win in one way or another. Yes. I mean, if you've got this company from the outside coming in, it's going to cause the big three and, and the Japanese companies and uh, European companies to really understand that electric cars, it, it's going to happen one way or the other. What I find interesting about BYD is they claim to be almost 100% vertically integrated. That means they make everything except for tires and windows, including the electronics. They have a, a chip manufacturer that's built in. They make their own batteries. And so some might say, well, they're probably having, you know, they have help from the government. And I say, well, so what? You know, I, I think for us, we, we, where the car companies have gone in the past 10 years, five years in particular, since we've been talking about this, Adam, it's just, it's abysmal. The decisions they've made, they haven't put all their their weight behind uh, the future. They're still holding on to the past. You know, they're still trying to sell cars on um, romanticism rather than than pragmatism, right? And I'm not sure what's going to happen, but it's going to be interesting to watch. And there's a lot of people trying to get into the game now. You know, in America, there's a, a eight or nine electric car companies. Uh, I spent a lot of time in California. I see all these different manufactured cars on the roadways and I wonder how many of them will survive. Um, you know, volume does have a way of keeping costs down. It also has a way of keeping quality up. You know, you, you need a lot of software. The more cars you have on the road, the more money you have, the more you can do to keep your software upgraded. Remember how many pieces of software you might've bought for your PC back in the 1980s and 1990s. And now today, you know, most of that software, you don't even remember those applications that you had. And why? Well, because they didn't have scale. And the guys that got the biggest number of eyeballs ended up with, with being the big winner on top of it. So how many of these people will have enough customers to get enough volume, to get enough cash flow, to be able to compete at making better software and better batteries? And as Tesla and BYD are duking it out. And I'm even including you know, companies like BMW and Mercedes in that. It's a very serious risk that those people aren't quite there. So there's two pieces of this story that I think are very important for our audience because our audience isn't making cars. But the first one is making a commitment in your resource allocation. Mm -hmm. Sitting back and saying, this is what's going on in the world and I'm going to commit to it. One thing you got to give Elon Musk credit for is committing his money that he made with PayPal to Tesla and sticking with it. When most of the people in the world and the people in traditional industry said this will never work in the early days, Elon Musk put his money into it and he made it work. Right. And so he made his bet. BYD was made a conversion from traditional manufacturing to all electric. And now it's a world player on the stage. And it can overtake a number of people that we've known for a long time. As we say here, they're threatening these other people. So I want our audience, I ask you. What's going on in the world and how are you making radical change? How are you investing properly? For example, do you own commercial real estate or should you get it sold before the commercial real estate market banks? 
Um, if you uh, rent space, is it time to revisit that question and say, wait a minute, with a hybrid workforce or you know, a lot more uh, work from home stuff happening, should I be downsizing my cost related to my office space by 70, 80 percent, revisiting my business model on that? Should I be rethinking how I service my customers from phone service to making it more possible to get connected to me with Zoom and FaceTime or uh, you know Instagram and other social media technology so that I can real time interact, not just on the phone, but with you know something that's that's three dimensional and allows me to be able to be more successful. And we talked about how difficult um, the uh, Comcast Xfinity service was recently. Yeah, Very traditional line, somebody in a foreign country talking to me and unable to really solve my problems. So there's a lot of things happening in the world today. And where are you going to commit to the future? That's the first thing. Where are you going to commit to the future? These big companies are at risk because they didn't make a commitment to the future. The little companies, and Elon Musk was once, you know, I remember Tesla was once a small mm-hmm. company, yeah. just sold one car, two passengers. They were happy to sell the first 100 cars, right? That, that's where you start. Where are you going to start? And that's one issue. And then you know, I'll give the second one out there and give you a chance, Manny. The second one is it's going to be tougher and tougher and tougher to succeed in business if you're not willing to face the issue of raising money. For years, we've thought of capital uh, raising as being something that was a bad thing to do. Don't sell stock in your company. Don't take loans. Don't take risk. Don't go out and take other people's money. Get by with your own money. That's a conservative approach. And you know what? Back if you get back before 1990, there was some sense to that because of the fact that it was very hard to raise capital. It was truly very difficult to do. There were not many sources of capital. And when you went at it, you you often had to give up a lot, you know, give up a third, a half your company, you know, and you had to give up a lot in order to try to raise that capital. But today it's a very, very different world. You know, you can raise money online. There's a hundred ways to raise money. You can raise it in smaller increments. You don't have to go out and try to raise $10 million. But it turns out that if we look at the fact that how important growth is and how fast things are changing, the big winners are the ones that built inside a capacity for raising money. Tesla. Look at the amount of money they had to raise over time to be who they are. Amazon. Amazon started out with a guy in a garage selling books. Don't forget this. It's Jeff yeah. Bezos, right? And he, he, they made movies about the guy. You can go look at where they filmed him in the early days when he had like four offices and they were just getting started. But he was ready to go out and raise money, right? Uh, Steve Jobs in the early days of Apple, extremely good at raising money. Um, uh, 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 Microsoft, Bill Gates. Again, very, very good at going out and raising money. In the, it's, it's, I think in a very real way, unrealistic to think you're going to be long-term successful using only your own money because it's so easy for competitors to do something different. And in this case, the example we have is here, we have BYD able to raise an enormous amount of money, most likely because of the backing of the Chinese government, Right. But it doesn't matter how they got that money. It doesn't matter that Tesla got money by taking deposits on cars and all the clever thing, tools that they used. They raised the money. And by raising the money, they took on the entire industry. Now, BYD is able to come from nowhere as a small company and raise the money to start to take on Tesla. And I want our, our audience to understand that money raising is an extraordinarily important part of being a successful entrepreneur. It's extraordinarily successful to being a small business person. If you can't raise money, then you're very limited in how fast you can grow. And the person who can raise money can just simply outgrow you. 
Um, the last example would be Let Us Entertain You. It was a restaurant company started in the 1980s. And back in those days, you had franchise restaurants like McDonald's and you had standalone restaurants. And the standalone restaurants were typically, you know, like if you if you had a white table called restaurant, the owner had that one restaurant. And if they had two or three, that was pretty unusual. But, you know, you knew like the best steak in New York's Peter Luger. So that was the only restaurant that Luger had, right? But Let Us Entertain You in 1980 started realizing, no, 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 we can have multiples. Well, what we have to do is raise money. We have to get people to trust us that we can be more successful than the average restaurateur. And they ended up having 60, 75 high-end white tablecloth restaurants. And I never forget it because by the year, I think it was the year 1995, um, I read an article about how the founders who, they were from Chicago and I had met them in the 80s. Um, they had their own personal like 727 jet that they were flying around the country to go visit their own restaurants. And, and here you had restaurateurs an industry where most people work 20 hours a day and they hope to break even. You can hear all the nightmares of being a restaurateur. Yep. And here are two restaurateurs flying around in their own big Boeing private jet. Yeah. And it, why? Because they raised the money. So are you making the decision to resource the, the things that can grow? And number two, what are you doing to prepare yourself to raise money so that whenever you know you get a chance to grab the tiger by the tail, you can do it? Exactly. And I think a lot of, especially engineers, Adam, you and I are both engineers by our education, our uh, initial uh, careers. A lot of technical people have this idea in their mind that they create this winning product and create this, uh, you know, with all the bells and whistles, shiny and ready to go, and then it'll sell itself. <laughs> but, you know, they, they overlook or they, they don't look hard enough at the product market fit, which is basically another way of saying trends. And then, of course, what you said behind you is, of course, is the money. If you don't have the backing, if you don't have the uh, the fuel, you're not going to get very far. And I mean, you might become a small cottage, little um, whatever. In this case, a restaurant or a small cottage manufacturing company, but you're not going to achieve that scale that you likely want, and you're not going to have the impact with your customers uh, across the globe that you're not going to have unless you have that money in the bank. 11 years ago, um, I realized there was a huge gap in the marketplace where people were using email for other communications. And email is an untidy tool. You know, you, you forget it. You don't read something that you should read. You don't know if you said something, you, you know, think people get copied and it's too many people copied. And then keeping track of your emails and folders becomes really difficult. It's not, a, it's just a very sloppy tool. And so I sat down with, uh, with Mary Lou McNally and we designed a better tool. We called it Content Web. And we put a quarter million dollars into developing this tool. And it was slick. I mean, really, really slick. And we would put clients on it and the clients loved it because you could sign in. And if there was a to-do, it was there. It was, everything was already in the folders. It was, it had a library system built into it. It had a, a time tracking system on everything. And it was really cool. And our clients really loved it. We said, you know, this is exactly what we wanted. We've tested it with our clients. Let's take it to market. And it didn't take very long to realize that that was like a $10 million decision. And we were going to go up to get awareness, to get people to actually use this tool who weren't our clients. We meant they had to have faith in the software. And we had to do a lot of marketing, a lot of branding, and put a lot into it if we were going to try to make that happen. And the reality was we hadn't prepared for that. And we didn't know how to go raise $10 million to put this in place. Made a trip to California. And the time we were in Chicago, made a trip to California, talked to some entrepreneurs, and basically was said, was told, look, you're going to have to move to California. You're going to have to spend a year. You're going to go around and demo this thing to all these venture capitalists and and." Um, private equity people, you're going to hope to get some money out of it. But by the way, over here is Slack. 
and Slack's already started down the road and Slack's already raised about $50 million and you're behind them. And I said, yeah, we've done a comparison. Our product's much, much better than Slack. They said, yeah, but Slack's got money and Slack's already got to the money, man. People that have invested in Slack are not going to invest in you. They're not going to drop their investment in Slack just because you're here on the game. And at the end of the day, we gave it up. We tried. Uh, we were too late. We didn't think about the fact we were going to need the money when we started development. And so we got half of it right by investing in a groundbreaker that we didn't think about the money side of it until it was too late. And by then we were so far behind and lacking the tools. We had not prepared ourselves. You know, I should have started during that same time the software has been developed. I should have been talking to venture capitalists. Yeah. I should have been finding somebody who was really good at raising money to become part of the organization somehow, giving them equity or maybe hired them into the organization and said, when we get ready to break this thing free, it needs you to be able to help me go out and raise a million, two million, five million and get this thing going. And that was a personal failure I had because I didn't follow those two rules. And if you look across people that win, they invest in the next big thing and then they know how to go raise money. Very well said, Adam. Very well said. And this is all food for thought for the rest of the year as you are growing your business. Understand uh, what the trends are. Understand what the decisions you need to make internally. Put that power and the money behind it. And uh, make sure you've got the dry powder to finish the, uh, the call when, when you're trying to uh, take this to market. So with that, Adam, have a wonderful rest of the week. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.